do an introduction to a series. I take about 10 minutes and, and set up the series. But I really feel, uh, as I was going through it uh, this week especially, that I needed, I needed a, an entire message to kind of set the parameters of what we're going to be doing into August. So uh, that's, what, that's what we're going to be doing this morning. And as we begin the series of messages this morning, I want to begin with a story that I read uh, a few weeks ago. It's a, it's a true story. Many years ago, uh, it happened. It's a story of William Montague Dyke, with a name like that. It's got to be British, right? You know, you know that. Um, when he was 10 years old, William, uh, he, he was uh, in a serious accident, and he became blind. And uh, despite his disability, he excelled in school. He went to the university. He graduated with high honors. And while he was in school, he met the daughter of a high-ranking British naval officer. They fell in love. And they became engaged to be married, and they prepared for their marriage. Well, shortly before the wedding, William had what was then a cutting-edge operation done on his eyes. Now it would be like an inpatient kind of thing, 15 minutes to go back to work, I think, kind of thing. But then it was like, you know, this is, this is the 1920s. It's, it was like, we're going to try this, and we're going to see. But if this doesn't work, there's nothing else. This is it. You're going to be blind for the rest of your life. Well, after the operation, William, uh, his, his head was kind of swathed with bandages, and he ins- even though the, the surgery was done plenty of time before the wedding to see what was going to be on, he insisted on keeping the bandages on. And the reason that he insisted on keeping the bandages on, because he said, if the surgery is successful, he told his surgeon, I want the first person I see to be my new bride. Well, the wedding day arrived and the guests assembled. Again, this is a true story. It's, it sounds like a cheesy TV, made-for-TV movie, doesn't it? I mean, I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't do this, but it's really true. The wedding day arrives, and, uh, you know, when they're going to take their vows in his grand cathedral in England, and William's father, along with the doctor who performed the surgery, stood at the front of the church waiting for the bride to come down with her father to the head there. And the organ trumpeted the traditional wedding march, and she came down that long aisle. Now, could you imagine sitting there? Now, everybody knows what's going on. Uh, could you imagine sitting there, being part of this, knowing that, you know, in seconds, this could be the greatest moment ever, or it could be a total, I mean, this could be the worst, I, I would want to just leave, I'd want to, you know, why would I want to stick around for this? So everybody is literally on the edge of their seat, the, the entire congregation is holding their collective breath, and as she arrives at the altar, they positioned the bride and the groom in front of each other, and the surgeon took out a pair of scissors out of his pocket, and he began to slowly cut the bandages from William's eyes. And everybody, as I said, was just mesmerized. Then, as the last bandage came off, and he stood face to face with his bride, William's words echoed through the entire cathedral when he said, you are even more beautiful than I ever imagined. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Christians, one day the bandages that cover our eyes are going to be removed. And we do, it's, it's like we do have bandages in our eyes. And our faith will instantly become sight. Could you imagine? In one second. And we will see the Savior who died for our sins. We will see him as he is. And we will see him in all his glory. And he will be even more beautiful than you ever imagined 
in your most intimate time. But it's not only Christ who we're going to marvel at, and we will certainly marvel at him. It's, you know who we're going to be marveling at also? Each other. I'm going, to be mar- I'm going to get to heaven, I'm going to be looking at you, and I'm not going to have looked in a mirror yet, got a load of myself, but I'm going to be looking at you and going, I, I, as, as C.S. Lewis said, I, I think my initial reaction will be to bow down and worship you. That's what the Bible says. That's the glory that will be ours when we one day see him face to face and all the sin and, and, and all the dirt washes off that's left. Even though he's been working on it in us, it, it, it kind of washes off. That's why uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 1, wonderful verse, in verse 6 says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is working in our lives, and one day the job will be done. I can't help but think that Paul's words were ringing in John's ears, even as Liz read a moment ago, when he says, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. And until that day when we see him uh, in an instant... You know, the job is ongoing. It's ongoing. We as Christians slowly progress, the scriptures say, toward that day. It's, it's as if, well, it's not as if, it, it is. God looks down. He sees us as shadows of what we will one day be. He sees us ruined by our flaws. He sees us wrecked by our self-centeredness. But he loves us, and he sent Jesus to die on the cross, God did, and he took the punishment for our sins, and he embraces us, and he comes into our lives. But what does he do then? Did Jesus just come to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Did he come for that? Yes, absolutely he did. Does he save us from judgment? Absolutely he does. But he did come for more than that. He loves us. He died on the cross, but he didn't come just to forgive us. Jesus isn't happy with just merely pardoning us who have faith in him. If you love someone, think about it. You you don't want to see them, you know, flawed and broken and keep doing stupid things all the time, do you? Don't you want them to progress? Don't you want them to mature? Don't you want them to stop doing the things that have brought so much pain to them and to those around them? The answer is yes. Anybody, whether it's a child, whether it's a parent, whether it's you know, a, a neighbor, anybody would want to see that. So Jesus wants to make us better. Gradual perfection. So what does he do? He comes into our lives and he gradually cleans us up. More and more we die to ourselves and more and more we live to righteousness because God has a vision of our future glory in heaven and for your immediate future on the earth. And he says, you know what he says? I know what you can be. And I know what you're going to be. I I was there at creation. I saw you in my mind's eye at creation. You are merely a shadow of what you should be. And it's incredible what you're going to be. And through my blood and through my sacrifice and through my service, I'm going to get you there. I will get you there. Imagine a spouse, or a child, or, or, or the person sitting next to you on that final day of judgment when God destroys all death and all evil and all suffering and there's a new heaven and there's a new earth and everything that is wrong and all the evil falls off and you become everything that you were always meant to be. You know what? God is moving us 
towards that glorious day. He's moving us. This is why Jesus came. Not just to save us from eternal punishment, although that is no small thing. He came to make us new people. This is our calling. This is what spiritual life is really all about. It is to become, as C.S. Lewis said, everlasting splendors. But i got to tell you, the road from here where I am and there where I will one day be, you know, sometimes, and it depends on the day, but sometimes it seems light years away, doesn't it? Are you, are you kind of with me on that a little bit? I, I, honestly, you know, I travel this road, and here's the truth. If I had to weigh it, I think there are more times when I am disappointed with myself than when I am happy and pleased with myself. Because I'm, I'm, I'm constantly battling with who I am in reality and what I would like to be. No matter how many people say to you, oh, Pastor, you're good. Oh, Tim, you're good. You're good, you're good, you're good. See, I know better. Because I, I, I know my thoughts. I know words that I say under my breath or out loud in my car when nobody's sitting next to me and I don't have to be careful. See, I, I, I know that. I want to be better. I want to think more lofty thoughts. I honestly, and God knows this, I honestly want to be a good son of my heavenly father, but it just seems like so many things get in the way. And what makes it worse is no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I work at it, I can't shake this feeling that I was made for greater things. I was made to be a greater person. Not greater in the sense of famous, greater, you know, but better. And when I sit and think about it, you know, sometimes I think about that and I say, you know, that's, that's not right. But then I think about it and I go, well, yeah, it really is, actually. Actually, you know what? I think those thoughts are from God. That makes perfect sense. Because when I read about my first parents, what they were like, how they were created perfect, without sin, without a propensity towards evil, see, I feel deep inside of me that's what I should be. That's what I want no matter how marred my character has become, I still feel that that is where I should be. No matter how many cracks are present in the foundation of my life. So when I don't live up to what I feel deep inside of me, I become terribly disappointed with myself. I become disappointed with myself as a husband. I'm disappointed with myself often. As a father. And now I got a granddaughter. So I'm, saying, I'm thinking this week, how long before I'm feeling disappointed about being a grandfather? How long is that going to take? You know, pretty soon. I was walking the dog the other, the other morning. And I was praying for a few of our neighbors as I, as I walked the dog. And, um, you know, I looked at uh, one neighbor's house and I said, Lord, I haven't really been a great neighbor to some of these people. This woman lost her husband a year ago, and in that year, I've never gone over to the house. I've never said to her, hey, you know, how you doing? Is, I mean, in passing, but never sat down. Never said, is there something we can do? Something, something I could do, something Marianne and I could, something that our, our church could do for you? I've never done that, and I'm praying about that, and I feel disappointed. I have fallen to sleep at times during staff prayer meeting on Thursday afternoons. I, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I realize uh, my turn. And uh, yes, and I think I pray about the same. I think I kind of go over the same stuff, and they're probably going, what is he, crazy? We just, we just, we just did this one, you know? I, I, I will turn on the news 
at night for 10 minutes, just for 10 minutes, and I'll end up watching some stupid movie that I've seen 20 times before, wasting time, and then I'm tired in the morning. You know what? It, it, sometimes it gets literally embarrassing. So often, too often, I fake for public consumption what I want deep in my heart. I went to a high school reunion, one of my high school reunions. Well, my high school reunion. I went to one high school, but I went a few years ago, and I did my best impression of a totally put-together successful guy. My best impression. I, 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 you know, I put a picture on Facebook, but i got to make sure it's my best angle, my best look. And when I see someone put a picture of me uh, somewhere that I didn't authorize, and, you know, it's unflattering, it actually ticks me off a little bit. i got to tell you something. And then somebody says, well, that, that's how you look. I go, no, it's not, that's not it. You know, I, I, and I look at a lot of the people, and I say to myself, these are fine folk. But man, if they knew how positively sinful I could still be, how jealous I can get sometimes when I'm around really, really successful people. And I'm starting looking at them, and, and you know what? I, you know, when I go into a big church, and, um, uh, you know, like they're, they're a frame behind on, on the choruses, you know, and I go, I mean, I, I, sometimes I really feel like that. Uh, it's like, good, they, do, they screw up too. Uh, I'm glad for that, you know? I, I find that in my heart. I, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, I, I, I see these things, and, and they just, they shock me, and they would shock others. And, you know, I, I still, under pressure, sometimes under pressure, I still go back to old prejudices, historic hatreds, and unforgiveness. And what I do, I am so disappointed in myself. I am so disappointed. It's what, what one author said, the pearly ache in my heart. So I spend a lot of time in a state of disappointment, knowing that I'm not the man that God had in mind when he designed me. That is the truth. Now, having said all that, there is one other thing that you need to know. And that is that I also know that I'm not what I used to be. I'm not. Uh, by God's grace, I do see advancement in my character and have. When I read the list of outcomes or fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, uh, I see that, you know what? I, I, I think I have progressed in my love for people and, and, and my desire to serve people, to not use people for my own selfish goals and ends. I have seen God over the years loosen my grip on money. And, and, and in chasing, you know, refraining from chasing after material things. I have seen things that, you know, I can only give glory to him for and be thankful for. I, I, I think, though, this drive to be what I should be, see, I think that's in the human psyche. I think it's deep, deep in our human psyche to be better. Why else do we go on diets? Why, why, why do we sign up for membership in the health club? Why do we go to back to school as adults? Why do we make New Year's resolutions? Why do we go to recovery groups? Why do we read self-help books, which is a big section at the bookstore on self-help books? Big, big section. Why? We want to be better. We want to be a better version of who we are. Some people just get to a point where, you know what, after a number of years, they just said, I'm done. This is useless. I'm never going to be any different. This is the way it is. Folks, i got to tell you, that's a pity for the general public. It's a tragedy for a Christian. A tragedy. Jesus said one time, I have come that you might have life and have it how? Abundantly. 
He wasn't talking. Some people like to spiritualize that and say, well, he's talking about heaven. Yeah, we get it. Okay, one day, you know, but now it's going to be miserable. Every day here is going to be just, you know. That's not what he was talking about. He was taught in the midst of the circumstances of life, which sometimes are positively brutal. He wants us to have an abundant life, a full life, a life that is punctuated by joy and peace and love and giving. That's what he wants for us right now, and it is possible. You know what? Growth is possible to that point. In fact, it's inevitable for the Christian. God's ultimate plan is a complete renovation of me, body, soul, and spirit. I know it will never be realized fully until I get to heaven. I know, but there is so much that God wants to do right now. He wants to get me on that path. He wants me to begin to taste the fruit that one day will be fully mine. And the thing is, the pace, and this is what I learned, the pace of how quickly we get there and the level of growth I will experience here and now is largely up to me. It is largely up to me. That's what this series is all about. Jesus confronted people directly about the choice to become a follower of his. He came announcing that it is now possible to live in the presence and under the reign of the Father. That was the good news. Yes, we're sinful, but we are desperately loved by God. So it's possible when we understand the gospel to live in such a way that when people see us, they will look at us and they'll say to themselves, Wow, I didn't know life could be lived like that. I didn't, I, I didn't know that, but here it is. I see it. It must be true. Folks, um, that is what we're going to be talking about. And you know what? This new, this new life, this new look happens all the time. It really happens all the time. It's happened for many of you. It's happened for many followers of Christ. It really is possible. This is the pearl of great value that Jesus talked about when he said any sensible person would sell everything to get the pearl of great price. This is the race that we were born for. But we will not drift into this kind of life. We must decide to run the race. We must decide on our own. If there is one thing that the Apostle John emphasizes in his book, it's that when we meet Christ, when you receive him into the core of your life, when you experience his forgiveness that he offers you, you will not be the same person. You will not be. You can't be the same person. Christ's presence in a life results in changes to that life all the time, every time, no exceptions. Now, he says two things in the passage that we were looking at this morning. He says, number one, I'm not what I was. John says that. He makes a case for saying, I'm, I'm not what I was. Um, in fact, I just, you know, I was going to say he echoed me, but I think he was first. I, I'm really the one who's echoing him. Uh, that's where I got it from. He says uh, at the beginning of that uh, chapter, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, let me ask you something right now. As he's making his case, you know, that I'm not what I was. Uh, how many times, or how many people you got to murder before someone recognizes you as a murderer? How many times do you need to abscond with the company's funds to be considered an embezzler? How many pair of pants do you need to steal from Old Navy before someone says, That's, you're a thief. That's a thief. How many times do we need to break the moral laws of God before he considers us a lawbreaker? The answer is... Once. One time. 
And you know, a lot of people, they look at this and they're saying, you know, John's coming down really strong. I mean, give me a break, will you please? I mean, so you mean to tell me I go to CVS and I put a, a stick of deodorant in my pocket and I walk out? I'm going to hell. Now, I've got to tell you something right now. Uh, I think I can make a case for God's judgment, even by breaking one moral law. It's like a chain. When one link breaks, you're hanging off a cliff, and one of the links breaks. You're not going to go, well, you know what? The other 37,000 links, they were really strong. You know what? It doesn't matter at that point. I can make a case for that, but I'm not going to make the case. You know why I'm not going to make the case? Because John doesn't make the case. People think that John's making a case for an individual sin, an individual indiscretion, stuff like that. He's really not here. I think I can make the case for that, but that's not what John is doing. John is looking at a much bigger picture in the third chapter here, especially in verse 4, when he talks about, you know, sins. He's talking about a general attitude of rebellion, sin, against God. John's saying, you know, look, I don't want to talk to you today about a single sin, my friends. I want to talk to you about a general attitude of rebellion that's on the hearts of all men and all women without Christ. He said, you know, I've written to you about all kinds of sin in the past, all of them serious consequences, all even single sins. They represent, though, you know what, the tippy top of the tippy top of a dark and deadly iceberg that lies beneath the surface. See, what's under the surface is what's going to kill you, what's under the surface. Now, the problem here, folks, John is saying, uh, he's not saying that, look, the, the jealous anger you displayed because your wife was talking over the fence to the new well-built, handsome neighbor. That's not the problem. The problem is that your heart is in rebellion against a holy God. In Romans chapter 3, the apostle Paul says that both Jew and Gentile are all shipmates on the same sinking ship. He, wrote, he writes this. He says their throats, he's talking about people in general, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursings and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. See, that's everybody. That's everybody. Again and again, the Bible says that a one-time slip of the lip, a single indiscretion, a single incidence of bitterness, that is not the heart of the matter. The problem goes much deeper. It's that we are all in the recesses of our hearts, rebellious against God. And folks, that's the big problem. Men and women are rebellious in their hearts. They're guilty before a holy God. They are under the wrath of God, both meriting and literally waiting for judgment. John says it is a life pattern. It is the position of everyone. So you say to yourself, well, that's, that's great. I mean, what hope is there in a seamless, hopeless situation. Well, how about the next verse? The next verse, it says this, verse 5. But you know that he, who's he? Christ appeared so that he might take away our sin. Jesus Christ did not come merely to teach us. Was he a great teacher? I, I do the Sermon on the Mount over and over again. I look at it, I look at it. In my, in my Bible, it opens right, it opens right to, to Matthew 5. It's, it's, it's torn, it's filthy, dirty, those, those pages. The greatest sermon ever. Did Je was Jesus a great teacher? Yes, he was. Was Jesus a great model? A great role model. You know, Mahatma Gandhi said that Jesus Christ was the best, the greatest role model that, model that ever lived. Was Mahatma Gandhi a follower of Jesus Christ? No, he, he, he wasn't. Did Jesus Christ come to be a role model? He did, but is that ultimately why he came? No, that's not why he came. 
Jesus came for one reason above all others. He came to die because a race of loved creatures made in his own image turned out to be persistent, regular, enthusiastic, at times violent lawbreakers. Lawbreakers who sinned had separated them from God, who loved them. And something had to be done to save them from themselves. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God's standards. And John said a chapter, just one chapter before what Liz read for us, in chapter 2, 1 John 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ came to die because we were defenseless against the charges leveled against us. He died because there was no other way in which we could be rescued from the position that we were in as lawbreakers. The breaking of the laws calls for punishment, and we had a mountain of legal debt to pay. And what happens when we in faith receive the gift of Christ's substitutionary death? We're forgiven for one thing. He he picks up the tab for the legal debt we have incurred. And when that realization, listen, when that realization strikes you, when you really understand what Jesus has done for you, and for many people here, there was a time. Maybe, maybe you could you, you got a date in your Bible, you know, February 16th, 19th, you know, and you got and you remember the day when, you know, as, as Paul said to Timothy, pray that the scales will be removed from their eyes. The scales dropped from you. You remember the day. For others of you, it's like it was over a long period of time. This one gave me a track, this one gave me a, a testimony. You watch something on television, blah, blah. And all of a sudden you said, you know what? Click, 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 click. I get it. I get it. And, and, and the realiza- this, this realization, this sobering, magical, shattering moment happened to you. In the words of John Newton, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. John was saying, I am not what I was. I was owned by the evil one. I was a slave on the trading block, but I have been purchased by the blood of Christ. John needs to make that clear. But the second part of what he says is what this entire series is about. He said, I'm not what I was. I am not what I'll be. I am not what I will one day be. Christ did not die merely to pay for our legal fees. The fact is that it's often overlooked is that Christ died to do something. He came to smash the works of the devil. Just Satan is building his kingdom. Life, one life at a time. One indiscretion at a time. One rebellious individual at a time. He is building world structures, and Jesus Christ came to smash that world structure. He came to, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what he meant? Did it, was it coming the way we know it will come one day when heaven and earth will be one? Not yet. Not yet, but he has begun one life at a time, one decision at a time, to begin to smash the works of the devil. Amen? The reason the Son of God, verse 8 says, appeared was to destroy the devil's work, to take the destruction that he has wrought and turn it around one life at a time, to slowly unlock the chains that he has bound us with and, and at times we're not even aware of. He came to make us, the biblical word sounds very spiritual, he came to make us holy. 
separated, pure, set apart. He came to make us holy, and one by one, he's doing it. People here. Folks, if you think Christ came to die to pay for your sins, you're right, but you're only half right. You're only half right. He also died to make you holy. He came to break the pattern of lawlessness in your life and to replace a spirit of rebellion against God with a spirit of Jesus who will make us like him. He came to make us literally new people, people forgiven, people who are holy. And part of that newness has to do with replacing sinful, rebellious hearts with humble ones, open ones, And he wants to begin now. Now. David wrote in Psalm 51. What a a wonderful psalm. Create in me a pure heart, O God. You You know what the word used there, pure? Single. A single heart. Going in a single direction. Thinking more more about one thing. Everything else comes under that. One thing, everything else I do comes under that. Create in me a pure, unadulterated heart, God. Make me single-minded. Make me pure. Uh, Help me uh, to will one thing, to seek you, to be like you. To grow spiritually, you know, means to live in increasing measure as Jesus would have me live. He said in verse 3, John In 1 John, he said in verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Yes, when we're saved, you know, God looks at us. What what does he look at? What does God look at us through now? He looks at us through what? Christ? Christ colored glasses. He sees sees us and he sees Jesus. We are pure. We will never, we will, Romans 8:1, we will never suffer condemnation. That is over with. No more condemnation. The devil may get us to believe that we're still condemned, and he may, he may. Torture reasoning and whisper into our ears. But you know what? There's no condemnation for the believer. Never, ever again. But you know what? We haven't come into the fullness of what we will be. God wants to bring us into that fullness of what we will one day fully be. Folks, uh, what he's talking about is that God is continually working. He wants us to think as Jesus thinks. He wants us to serve increasingly as Jesus served. He wants us to see others and to feel and to act as Jesus would. And as the marred image that sin has created in us begins to slowly fade as we focus on the great truth that Christ died not only to forgive our sins, but to also make us holy, we begin to see the world through different eyes. We do. We begin. And when we, listen, when we begin to, to see the world through different eyes... That is the key to change. It's the key to our change. That change then becomes a sure proof that God has indeed invaded our lives. If you need proof to see that Christ's presence in a life results in change to that life, all you need to do is remember why he appeared. Christ Jesus appeared to take away our sins and break the pattern of lawlessness present in us to make us holy. He came to do both. If one has happened, the other must come behind it. At least John thinks so. That's why he makes a statement that frightens me. i got to tell you, the first time I read this, I freaked out. Uh, and you probably didn't. And when Liz is reading it, you're going, well, this was kind of a good service up until right now. He says in verse 6, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. And then he says in verse 9, he goes, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. I remember the first time I read those words. <laughs> and I was like, you know, like, I, I'm, I, I'm still, I, I'm doing it, I, I get it, you know what? It's, I'm still struggling, I'm still, I, I, you know, I'm still stuttering. You know, I was well aware back then of my sin with grappling with holiness and the remnants of a rebellious heart back then. Guess what? I still am. I still am. John, as I said, he's not talking about sinlessness here. John himself said in, in chapter 1 and verse 8 and chapter 2 and verse 1 that, you know what? If you say you're, you're without sin, what are you? You're a, you're a liar. You're a liar, of course. Same author, same book. To understand fully what John is saying here, you know what you got to look at? you got to look at the tense of the verb. The tense of the verb is all important here. In Greek, a present tense verb usually indicates repeated, 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 repeated activity. John is emphasizing the ongoing, habitual lifestyle in the life of an individual where there is little concern and less effort to change. People who, you know what, yeah, you know what, I'm in this relationship, I'm in this, I'm doing that. Uh, I have this propensity towards this certain sin, and I don't, you know, what are you going to do? It's me. You know, it's my father. You met my father. You know, he was the same way, and you know. So, so that's okay? Uh, you know what? Nobody, nobody's perfect. See, when somebody has that attitude, and you hear somebody say that, we're a nobody to judge. But I got to tell you something. When I hear that, I wonder if this person has been deceived. Sometimes I wonder, i got to tell you right now, if they have no concern for correction, if they have no concern with living a holy life, you got to wonder if the Spirit of God really dwells there. John is talking about a habitual lifestyle that goes on and on and on and on. And you know what? It kind of makes sense. Because if Christ came to break the pattern of lawlessness in my life by making me legally free and holy as he is holy, if he's given me the spirit of Jesus to instruct and teach and encourage me, then it would make sense that I would, in, progress, in a progressive sort of way, see in my life the fruit that comes from smashing the pattern of lawlessness and the works of the devil in my life. John says in the second half, and you know what? A lot of times we split it, but you know what? We can't get away because, you know, look what he says in the second half of verse 7. Second half of verse 7, he says this. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Taken as a whole, the general pattern of one's life will show whether Christ is present or if he is not. Those who belong to Christ will begin in a progressive manner to do the things of Jesus. Those who don't are continuing to do the works of the devil. If God be in your life as an individual, listen, his fingerprints are going to be all over you. You know, they'll be all over you. So, so you can say, honestly, you could say, I'm not what I ought or was made to be, but thank God in heaven, I'm not what I used to be, and by the grace of God, I'm not what I will be. I think that's what John was saying to this little church. And he said, be careful. Be careful, be careful, be careful, he said. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Don't let them tell you that, you know what, you could take Jesus Christ as your Savior, get your fire insurance, and then live life 
without any thought of becoming holy. See, see, if you think you could separate those two, you don't understand the gospel. Because Jesus Christ has saved us, your heart in some measure will be changed. That you, you will desire an increasing measure to serve him. If it's merely out of thanksgiving, merely out of thanksgiving, you never see one benefit in your mind. You know, five years down the road, you're thinking, five years from now, I'm just going to keep doing it because I'm thankful. You will see benefits. But if you're just thinking about that, you know what? It proves something. And if you, and if you don't, it, that proves something too, I think. It, but you know what? A lot of times I look at this and I say, I get it. Wow, man, he's all excited up there and he's yelling and everything. Wow. But tomorrow's Monday, and I go back to, to having quite a challenge. Quite a challenge. That new song we, we sang, the second song, guys, I, uh, I didn't even know. They said, we're singing a new song. I said, okay, that is everything we're talking about today. You know, you're walking along, you're walking outside the walls, right? Hey, Jericho. That wall's still there. You keep walking around, and it's never falling. What's going on? You know what? You know, life seems to, to present so many challenges. I need, listen, I need help to run the race. I, I need to know what I need to do. Tell, Pastor, tell me. I'm glad, I'm glad you asked. Because you know what? That's what this, this series is about. Enter the series on spiritual disciplines. As we close this introductory message in our series, let me, I want to answer a few questions that you might have in your mind. Okay? We're going to spend a lot of time in this, so... Ask your questions now. Well, let me answer them. I, I know what they probably would be. Um, what, what, what are spiritual disciplines? I mean, what are they? Well, what, what's a discipline? A discipline, basically, is any activity I can do by direct effort that will help me do what I cannot do now by direct effort. In other words, I want to be more patient. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. Uh, I can't be patient. You need something to help. What is it that could help you to, you know, and that's kind of getting on to the second one, that will help you do what you know you, you need to do and how you want to be. A spiritual discipline is any activity at all that can help me gain power to live life as Jesus taught and Jesus modeled it, as, as we saw Jesus live his life. Anything, any activity to gain power in my life. Now, there's a couple of what they are and a couple of what they're not as far as the spiritual disciplines are concerned. Number one, spiritual disciplines are a means of drawing near to God. You know, what, you know what the word uh, means, discipline, in Scripture? New t- you know what the Greek word is? Gymnazo. Where we get our word, our English word, gymnasium and gymnastics from. The word means literally to exercise vigorously in any way, either body or mind. To exercise. In fact, in the King James, if you have a King James version, uh, you have the Scripture open before you. You know what it says for this verse? Uh, for First Timothy, that verse in First Timothy, uh, which says, train yourself to be godly in the NIV, it says, exercise thyself unto godliness. Exercise. People didn't know. They said, ah, what does that mean, exercise yourself? So they said, discipline. Okay, we get it. Exercise thyself unto godliness. In fact, one author called it a very sweaty word, which has the smell of the gym to it. Discipline. Think of the spiritual disciplines as spiritual exercises. To engage in any of the spiritual disciplines that we're going to be talking about is like, is like going to the, you know, you go to the gym, you lift weights, or you take a cycling class, or you take an aerobics class. Those things are meant to promote what? Physical stamina, physical strength. The disciplines, the spiritual disciplines are meant to promote godliness. 
Spiritual disciplines are a way by which we spiritually place ourselves in the path of God's grace as we seek him. It's almost like Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He, yeah, he couldn't, he's gone, he's like this, he couldn't see. He's a little guy, he's a little guy. So he climbed the tree and he put himself in the path of Jesus. And Jesus, as he's walking back down, goes, hey, come on. He put himself in the path of grace. That's what the spiritual disciplines are. John Ortberg said this. He said, spiritual transformation is not a matter of trying harder but of training wisely. There is a big difference between training to do something and trying to do something, and you know this. Don't you, don't you come across, a lot of times you walk away a, a, a message, you hear a sermon, you hear something on the radio, blah, blah, the whole thing, and, and you, your, your takeaway is, okay, here's the key, I need to try harder. I just got to, you know, I got there's a sermon on gentleness, and you say to yourself, next day, no matter what happens today, or how stupid my boss is, or how stupid my teacher is, today, I'm going to react in a gentle way. And then they do something stupid. They act according to character, and you can feel it right here, right? The tension is in your throat, right? Paul said to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. To the church in Corinth, you know what Paul said? Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. You know what some scholars believe? A lot of scholars believe this. That Paul had just witnessed uh, the Ismanian Games in Corinth. He was there in Corinth, and the Ismanian Games were second only to the Olympic Games. And so he was using an illustration that, you know what, everybody, he's right, they all, they all get it, they all understand what he's talking about. To think that competitors uh, who, who want to win the crown just show up, that is ridiculous. And nobody would think that. They had to train. They had to train hard. They had to train for a long time. Anything that you end up doing well, whether it's playing a sport, playing an instrument, you, you know how you get good at it? By training. People who think that when they come to Christ that they automatically begin to forgive as Jesus forgave, and they begin to love as he loved, and they begin to show patience and gentleness as he began to show patience and gentleness. You know what? I got news for you. Or, 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 or patient with those who are terribly slow. See, you're brilliant, and everybody else is really slow. And, and you know, you're going to, well, I'm just going to be patient. See, if you think that, you are terribly mistaken. You are desperately mistaken. In the same way, to learn to think and to feel and respond as Jesus did and does, it's as demanding as learning how to skate the short program at the Olympics. The activities that help you learn to be like, like Jesus, you know what they're called? Spiritual Disciplines, let me just make a statement right here. And I don't care whether you agree or not, you're wrong if you disagree with this, okay? Any person, any person who has gone a distance following Jesus, any person I've ever met, they have in some measure instituted the spiritual disciplines into their life. Bar none. 100% of the time. Okay. Second thing, spiritual disciplines are activities. They're not attitudes. They are activities, not attitudes. It's great to have a good attitude. It's not what we're talking about. Okay, we're not talking about a good attitude here. The disciplines are things that you do, not who you are. 
their practices, not character qualities or, or their, 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 their you know, fruit of, of the Spirit as outlined in Galatians chapter 5. See, the goal is about being, being like Jesus. Train, discipline yourself to be godly. The disciplines are specific practices we do sometimes that cultivate generally being like Jesus all the time. We learn by the disciplines to act and to be like Jesus, to be like him, to be him to other people. Fasting is something you do. Is fasting godliness? No, it's not. It can be a tool that leads to godliness. Fasting is not the goal. It is a tool. The purpose is godliness, not fasting. The purpose is to become closer to Christ and conform to his image more and more. A couple of things, real quick, real quick, that spiritual disciplines are not. Uh, spiritual disciplines are not a barometer of spirituality. They are not a barometer of spirituality. They are not indicators of the depth of one's spirituality. You could be fasting, having regular times of prayer, reading your Bible three hours a day, observing a Sabbath of rest, meditating, and in effect, have a spiritual life that is a mile wide and an inch deep. In fact, you could go the other direction. You can become more unspiritual by doing the spiritual disciplines. How so? The Pharisees were marvelous, marvelous in their discipline, in following the law. Would you say that the Pharisees had a heart for God? They became more self-righteous. They became, hey, it's about me. When the poor tax collector would not even look up to God, when he was asking for, he wouldn't even look to heaven, but he looked down and he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The, tax, uh, the, the Pharisee was going, God, I thank you I'm not like this man over here. You know, I tithe, I give, t- you know, blah, blah, you know, wah, wah, wah. He went on for about five minutes there, Matthew. Who is justified and who is guilty? See, the spiritual disciplines, if you think that's the goal, it'll turn around and it will bite you and it will destroy you. They are not the goal. The fruit, the fruit is the focus. The disciplines are not the focus. Um, One other thing. They're not a way to earn favor with God. Just kind of said that. They're not a means by which we gain favor with God. They have value in as much as they teach us how to morph into something more beautiful than we are. Who was it, the Power Rangers? (laughs) Was that who it was? That morphed? It's morphing time. That was, was that, the 90s? I forget what that was. But you know what? It's morphing time. It is morphing time. It's time to begin to morph into what we were always meant to be. We do, listen, the spiritual disciplines are what's one called a means of grace. That is, they are a means to grow towards the life that God wants for us. And last thing, last thing, really quick. The spiritual disciplines are not necessarily hard. You know, you think about spiritual discipline, you think about push-ups and you run in laps and everybody hates to run, but well, some don't. But uh, remember what we're training for. We are, we are in training for the life God wants us to have, a life of peace and love and joy and contentment. The results are not something you come upon. You know what? Five years down the road, maybe I'll have an ounce of joy. Folks, i got to tell you something. When you begin and you see the disciplines as a means rather than an end, the first day that you start to read... The first day that you truly 
pray to God in heaven and you know that there is a God in heaven who hears you and cares about what you care about, the very first day you will begin to change. You don't have to wait five years. You don't have to wait a lifetime. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven. You will begin to change right away. It's a promise. They're not hard. You know what? We, we, we just say, there is freedom. Freedom. When you begin to be the person that you always knew you wanted to be and should be, that's freedom. See, all the rest is chains. All the rest is chains. The story of the human race is not just one of universal disappointment, but one of inextinguishable hope. And part of your story in God's plan, is a story of transformation. You will not always be as you are now. The day is coming when you will be something incomparably better or worse, one or the other. But you know what? God holds out the, the possibility of transformation. About the only thing I like about the Dallas Cowboys, the only thing I like about them, uh, is that they once had a coach by the name of Tom Landry. Tom Landry was a born-again uh, Christian. He was a, just, talk about a great example. And Tom Landry once said this. He said, the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. Some of the disciplines at first may seem, you know, a little, a little difficult. But the fruit that comes is what you always wanted. It's what you always wanted to be. In much the same way, Christians are called to make themselves by the Spirit's power to do what would not naturally come to them, to practice the spiritual disciplines in order to experience what the Spirit gives them, and it's a desire to be like Christ. Discipline yourself, says the scriptures, for the purpose of godliness. Here it is. I'm done. You ready? Three things I want you to do. As we go into the series, we really get into it next week. Three things. Number one, three words, three verbs. Ask. Ask God to reveal the areas that he wants to work in your life. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Ask him. Then after you ask him, expect him to be about the work of changing you. Lead me into the way everlasting, Psalm 139. And then last, remember. Remember that all that you are and will be forever is because of Jesus Christ. You owe him everything. The Spirit of God says, you know what? You know what he says in my heart? God is making you into someone who is more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And it doesn't start in heaven. It starts here. Are you ready for a workout? Are you ready for a workout as we begin? Are you ready to finally begin to live the life you've always wanted? We, by God's grace, will take this journey together. If you decide to join in, I guarantee that it will be a workout that will lead to the health of your eternal soul. I guarantee it.